about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully present, sorry, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace, and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Well, we've heard God's word. Let's pray as we turn our minds to thinking about it. Father, thank you for the scriptures which speak of your Son, Lord, open our minds and our hearts to hear and respond to this word from you today, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, Some of you know that my family and I lived in uh, Scotland for a few years, and some parts of Scotland, particularly the Northwest Isles, uh, the traditional culture is deeply, deeply Presbyterian. Even today, you can go to the Outer Hebrides and find nothing open on a Sunday because of a long tradition of keeping the Sabbath. I heard once about a couple on their honeymoon on the Isle of Skye, which is one of the most beautiful parts of Scotland, if you've you've ever seen it or been there. Um, And uh, one Sunday morning, they found themselves at a loss, not knowing what to do because all the shops were shut. The buses weren't running and no one was around, but they spied a, a little rowing boat down by the edge of the lock, and as it was an uncommonly nice day, they thought they might take it out. And they were just about to push the boat down to the water when an old lady that they hadn't noticed sitting on a wall uh, nearby called out, what are you doing with that boat? Do you near ken it's the Sabbath? That means do you not know it's the Sabbath? Um, Now, they were surprised, and they stopped, but the young man... Uh, who was there, he remembered some lessons from his Sunday school, and so he 
summoned some courage and he said, oh, hang on, hang on, didn't Jesus, didn't Jesus let the disciples pick grain on the Sabbath? And didn't he heal people on the Sabbath? And didn't he say, hang on, what was it? Didn't he say, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath? The old woman was silent for a moment then looked at him and said, not on the Isle of Skye, he didn't he? That's not a true story, obviously, just a joke. There we go. Well, actually, it might, might, might be a true story originally. I have met old ladies like that in Scotland. But today, you know, we come to the second part of Paul's discussion in Romans chapter 14 of what he calls their disputable matters. He was trying to help the Romans handle painful disagreements within their community about issues like whether people had to keep the Sabbath. Uh, or whether they could eat meat sacrificed to idols. Last week we saw how he begins this section in chapter 14, and really these three sermons on chapter 14 and the beginning of chapter 15 are a kind of, are a kind of whole. So um, last week we began, and next week it continues. So do come back and see where Paul lands. But last week we saw how he begins by calling everyone to an awareness of God's, the fact that God will judge and how we all have a master before whom we stand and who will make us stand at the end. His next step, which he takes in the passage before us today, is to, to kind of dive more closely into the, into the practicalities. What should they actually do in these, with these issues that they were facing? How are they going to deal with the differences they had before them? But throughout all this, Paul never stops reminding his readers of kind of deep theological truths, deep truths. You see, he doesn't just want them to act in a certain way. His desire is not just to get them to do something. He wants them to learn to think. At the beginning of chapter 12, he says, says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And that's what's going on here. He wants them to think about their action and what it means. For this reason, in this sermon, rather than working our way through the passage verse by verse, what I'm going to try and do is to kind of unpack the logic of Paul's ideas. I'm going to first highlight three truths that Paul reminds the Romans of in the course of this passage, and then we'll think about the action he calls for and a little of how this might, what this might mean for us today. Okay, so that's the shape of the sermon. We're not going to go through it bit by bit, but I will pick up on it all on the way. Well, let's begin by noticing three truths Paul draws his readers' attention to in the course of the argument, and he hopes these will shape their action. Here's the first one. The first is the truth of the preciousness of the brother or sister in Christ. This truth emerges first in verse 15. Paul says, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. And then he follows this up with this comment. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. With that last phrase, someone for whom Christ died, the apostle is drawing our attention to the the preciousness of those we sit beside in church or at youth group or whatever. Those in the Christian community, these are people for whom Christ died. 
He makes a similar comment down in verse 20. He says, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. He reminds his readers that the church, not the buildings, as nice as they are, but the people, this community, this is the work of God. It is precious. They are precious. We just have to not forget this truth. Right? And, and this is Paul's solution to the, the problem of contempt. Last week we talked about how he, he's telling them don't judge and don't show contempt. Contempt is when the other, the worth of another person disappears from view because of your kind of frustration with them and, and you, you, your negativity towards them causes their worth to disappear. But Paul here says, no, let their worth be really, really clear to you. We have, to, we have to remember this because it's, it's not obvious and sometimes it's easy for this truth to disappear. I mean, it's not obvious that the people we bump into in church are the work of God. It's not obvious. Churches are full of normal people with normal problems, ordinary irritations, failures and difficulties. And when you're in a squabble with somebody, it's as easy as at any other time for their value, their importance to just to just kind of vanish. Churches don't display their divine importance on the surface. I won't ask you to look around at people, but you know what I mean. But the surface is, the surface is deceptive. It can fool us because the lives of people who have trusted in Jesus are precious to God in an extraordinary way. The brother or sister in Christ with whom I have a complaint or a difficulty or who irritates me because of their stubbornness or legalism or complacency, he or she is someone for whom Christ died. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? He or she is the work of God. He or she has an unimaginable preciousness. That means we have to take care you wouldn't wander through a room packed with Ming Dynasty vases swinging your handbag around. And we are surrounded by objects of much greater preciousness. Okay, that's the first truth. It's a simple one, but an important one. The second is a truth about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, says Paul in verse 17 is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that statement mean? Well, the phrase, the kingdom of God, is a kind of summary phrase for all that God has done in Christ. Paul's talking about the triumph that has been won through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that he believes will one day fill the earth by God's Spirit. But what does it mean to say that this is not about eating and drinking, but about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? Well, one way we might understand it is to think that, oh, well, it's a contrast between what's physical and what's spiritual. The kingdom of God is not about physical things, it's about spiritual things. But that would be a mistake to understand it that way. Why? I mean, eating and drinking are physical, aren't they? So why would that be a mistake? It would be a mistake because then we would have an idea that Christianity is, is just about the kind of spiritual 
things and it, it, it's kind of detached from real life. But that's not, that's not true. That's clearly not the case. Jesus cared a lot about real life things like hospitality and poverty and sickness and sex and money. And so did Paul. And he talks about these things often, even in Romans, just before at the end of chapter 13, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Paul talks about getting drunk and avoiding sexual immorality and dissension. Okay, so if it's not about physical versus spiritual, what, what does Paul mean here? Well, the central issue, I think, has to do with the exercise of freedom. Remember, the key fight, the fight in the Roman church is, is probably about whether Christians are permitted to eat meat. In the context, what Paul is saying is that being able to exercise the right to eat and drink what you want, being able to exercise that freedom to eat and drink what you want, that is less important, it is less what the kingdom of God is about than maintaining and supporting the fellowship that has been won through Christ. He wants his readers to see that their relationships with one another, their shared experience of God's grace, that is more important than whether they are able to, to do what they want with, with eating and drinking. Friends, our world loves freedom. Or more accurately, we love freedoms. We love the freedom to do various things. And, and we resent it when people get in the way of that. Uh, imagine, just, just kind of get yourself into this situation for a moment, right? Imagine that like the people in Rome, you were asked to think about giving up your freedom to eat meat or to drink alcohol or to work on a Sunday or kind of do what you want on a Sunday because other people in the church community had a, had a real problem with those things. How would you react? Or perhaps something different. It, imagine it was your freedom to go dancing or to play video games. I mean, that's random, but imagine it for a second. You were asked to give up a freedom like this. How would it make you feel? I once went to a conference where it had been decided that because of certain people there's convictions about animals, uh, there would only be vegetarian food. Now, I actually quite like vegetarian food and often eat it, but I found myself really annoyed by this at the time because it felt like a really illegitimate imposition on my freedom. But, you know, there is a way of insisting on our rights and our freedoms that adds up to losing your grip on what the kingdom of God is about. Because the kingdom of God is not about our freedoms to do certain things. God did not give his son over to death and raise him from the dead just so that we could enjoy our freedoms. Now, the kingdom of God is about a much deeper freedom. It is about freedom from the power of sin and death. Freedom to love one another truly and to know the joy of God's forgiveness. And that is something that we have together in relationship, and we put it at risk if we care more about our freedoms than those relationships. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, 
but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The challenge this puts to us is to ask, what is more important to me? What is more important to you? Your freedoms to live the ways you want to, to do the things you want to, or the peace with God through Christ that draws us into relationship with one another. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to answer that question in the abstract. In the abstract, I hope you'll say, oh, that the kingdom of God's more important, right? But when the rubber hits the road, this is the thing to remember. Okay, that's the second truth Paul deploys in this passage. There's one more. It has to do with what we could call the dynamics of sin. At three points in this passage, Paul explains that sin is not merely about what we do. That is, doing the wrong thing is not merely about what we do. It's also about what we think we are doing and and what effect it has. So in verse 14, he comments, I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. Then in verse 20, he says something a bit different. He says, all food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. Finally, right at the end, he says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Now, there are two things going on here. First, Paul is drawing attention to to the reality that doing right, doing the right thing, is, is not just about what we do, but also about the way we do it. And in particular, it's about how we understand what we are doing. If someone thinks what they are doing is wrong, then in a certain way, it becomes wrong for them, or it just is wrong. Actually, we all know that what you think you're doing makes a difference, right? If somebody... Um, ask me for directions. Remember the days when people used to ask for directions? You, anybody remember this? It used to happen. Before people had, they could do it on their phone, people actually used to come up and ask for directions. It was actually kind of a nice, normal social moment. I miss it. Anyway, but imagine somebody came up and asked me for directions, and, and what I did was I tried to, I thought, I'll tell them a lie. And my hope is that they're going to get lost and fall in a hole, right? But imagine that I I made a mistake, and what I actually told them was the truth, and they ended up where they thought they were going, right? So what I tried to do was tell them a lie and make them fall in a hole, but what what I did by mistake was tell them the truth and get them where they wanted to go. The fact that they ended up getting it right, that doesn't make what what I did there okay, does it? Right? The fact that I, what I thought I was doing was telling them a lie to make them fall in a hole, that means it's a bad thing. Do you, you know what I mean? It's kind of obvious, actually, that what we think we're doing, that, that's a nut. I mean, I've never done that, obviously, but that's, a, that's kind of, that would be an example of a really weird and nasty thing to do, even though there would be no consequences for the person. And on one level, Paul's just saying, this is the reality of action. What people are think, think they are doing matters, and you've got to think about it. That's the first thing he's saying. The second thing he's saying is Paul, he's pointing out that, yes, we have to pay attention to the effect of our actions, to the consequences they have. And he says, if you, if you do something that causes somebody else to stumble, 
You might be doing the wrong thing, even though the thing you actually do is fine. If it caught, you've got to pay attention to the effect. Now, that second point is tricky because consequences are tricky. We can never actually have responsibility for all the things that flow from our actions because we can't foresee everything. There are unforeseen consequences. But there are some things we can foresee and we need to think about those. Sometimes those things shape the character of our action. And Paul's saying if you can foresee that your drinking alcohol is going to cause this person to stumble, then what you're doing is wrong, even though there's nothing wrong in itself with what you're doing. Do you see what he's saying? Now, I'm in danger of getting uh, a little carried away here um, because I'm really into this stuff. Uh, my academic work is in... I've done, I've done academic work in the past, and it's in ethics, and I've even written a fairly boring book about moral reasoning. Oh, how did that get there? There it is. It's on sale. Just, just if you're interested, there you go. I find the mates' rates are just them, them. If, like, you can buy it from me for much more. That's fine. You know, I find what Paul says here really, really fascinating uh, because he's paying attention to the way in which actions have a kind of subjective element that, that we need to think about. But even if this is not your bag at all and, and you don't care about this stuff, do at least pay attention to this that we have a responsibility to think about our action and its effect on others. We can't see everything, we can't foresee everything, but we do have to pay attention to the consequences we can foresee and to respect the fact that others see things differently. And that makes things tricky. Okay, they're the three big truths that Paul reminds the Romans of. Whoop, sorry, I'm getting carried away. On his way through the argument. Now what I want to go on to see, we're at point two now, there's no heading on the slide, but is, is what he does with them. Okay, how do these truths hit the ground practically and what can we learn from that? What I think we see as this passage unfolds is that in the situation facing the Roman Christians, these ideas lead to a call patiently to make space for others to walk their own path of faith. Patiently to make space for others to walk their own path of faith. Have a look at how it unfolds. Verse 13, Paul says, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. Instead of judging, Paul says, put your minds to not putting things in people's way. Right? What we've got to seek is an attentiveness, a paying attention to the reality of other people's lives that is a form of love. He talks about love in verse 15. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Love calls us to take thought to the effect our actions have on others and what is going to build them up. Paul goes on to call his readers to avoid, avoid putting people in a, in a position where they're forced to fight the wrong fights. He says in verse 16, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as, as evil. What he means, I think, is that you've got to avoid putting people in a position where they end up speaking against what is true and good, where they end up fighting stupid fights 
that are unhelpful for them. If the kingdom of God, he's saying, gives you the freedom to help people not have these dumb squabbles, then use it. Hold back graciously. Don't force the point for their sake. The heart of what he's calling them to, I think, is in verse 19. Really the central verse, I think. Let us, therefore, make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Edification is just a fancy word for saying building up. You know, a building is, can be called an edifice. Edification is the verb that comes from that. So let's do what makes for peace and building one another up. We're called to think, what we're called to think about is not just what we have a right and a freedom to do. That's easy to think about. But what we're called to think about is others. And to think about what's going to bring What's going to bring peace and and build us up together? Finally, at the end, in verse 21, Paul draws the specific consequence for the Romans. He says, it's better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. You can sacrifice your freedom to eat meat or drink wine, says the apostle, for the sake of the conscience of your brother or sister. Even if you think they're mad or difficult or ridiculous or uptight, you're free to withhold those views for their sake. Fundamentally, I see this as as a call to the Romans to make space for others. It's a call to a way of doing relationships that is characterized by patience with the foolishness and weakness of others. Paul calls the Romans to give thought to what their actions will mean for their brothers and sisters and to remember both how much these people matter to God and the freedom they have in Christ not to insist on their rights and therefore to be generous to one another's doubts and difficulties. Okay, well, where does this leave us today? I've taken us through this passage in the way that I have by first looking at the truths Paul draws his attention to and then turning to the practical outcomes. I've done it that way because I think it's a mistake to just jump too quickly to the practical conclusions and kind of just substitute our issues. What I wanted us to see was that what Paul calls the Romans to here flows out of deep Christian convictions, gospel convictions, and it's, it's part of a whole way of learning to approach one another that is actually more important than the, the, the issue of whether they eat meat or drink wine. And the reason I think that's important is that working out what to do in our time, in our place, with our issues and problems, it often requires more of us than just kind of substituting an issue for the one they had. And what we need to learn from is not just the conclusions Paul reaches, but how he gets there and why. So to finish, I want I us to think together briefly about an example, which it's an example, I've chosen one that I think to most of you, it will sound a bit crazy, okay? But that's, that's deliberate. <clears throat> You're going to need to imagine yourself into a, a different situation. But if this is your, if, if, if you have a view on this, 
I, I still hope that what I say will be okay. So imagine you're part of a church where uh, there are a small group of people who feel strongly that Christians should not read Harry Potter. Okay, and this comes up because there's a book club forms. Imagine maybe you're you've, maybe you're older and you've got kids and they're in a book club, or you're just younger and you're, or you're just in a book club, and and. Most of the people want to read Harry Potter, but there's some people who are really distressed by this. And, and they feel that this is wrong, and, and they start to question whether they can be part of the church. Okay? And because they just think Christians shouldn't read stuff that's about witchcraft. In, such, in, in a situation like that, the logic of what we see here in Scripture, it might lead us to say that the people who are in the majority should not insist on their rights and freedoms. However crazy they think this fight is, and even though they are free to read Harry Potter, there's nothing in the Bible that says you mustn't do that, but they might not insist on that because they give thought to the the distress that their decision is causing their brothers and sisters. And they remember how much those people matter to the Lord, rather than seeing them with contempt. Oh, those crazy fundamentalists. That's contempt. Instead of that, they go, wow, they're people for whom Christ died. And so they decide not to read Harry Potter that time. Because, shock horror, the kingdom of God is about more than Harry Potter. Now, so far, this basically matches what we see here, okay? Uh, We've substituted an issue, and it kind of makes sense. But notice also that that actually would be not a very good conclusion for that. That's actually only the beginning. It's not an end point. Because actually, is that really the end of the story, right? If that was all there was to say, wouldn't that leave us captive to other people's foolishness? Wouldn't that lead us captive to whatever random and odd ideas people had and wanted to insist on? And you can substitute other issues that might be more difficult. Uh, is, Paul, is what Paul's saying here meaning that we're, we're asked to never stand up for what we think we're free to do? This is where I think it helps to keep in view the whole logic of Paul's argument. Because amongst other things, what it does is it reminds us that the aim is not just keeping the peace. Paul's aim is peace, what did he say? Peace and mutual edification. The aim is not just to make sure people are not upset. The aim is to grow together in love. The point is not for people to avoid talking about things forever if they disagree about them. The point is to pay enough attention to one another that we can stay in relationship and learn from one another. I think this is why Paul doesn't hide his own views about this issue. Right? If all he wanted to do was to keep the peace... He would, he would not have said the things he said, but actually, he makes it very clear that he thinks the strong are right. He thinks those who think they're free to eat meat and drink wine, he thinks they're right. And so when he says in verse 22, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God, 
He can't mean that as a permanent recommendation. Just never talk about this again. He's not saying that because he doesn't do that himself. No, he, he sees that keeping that between yourself and God, that's a position, he says, that's right to take at a particular moment when the emotions are high, when the issue is hot, when somebody's distressed and offended and you hold back in order to, to stay with them. But Paul is not saying we should never talk about anything. Actually, I think the opposite is true. I think Paul's hope here is that by being willing not to worry about things at every moment, being willing not to insist on our rights at every moment in order to protect the relationship, we will, I think he hopes that we will win the chance to continue to talk and to learn from one another and to change people's minds. As we, as we talk and find each other and find each other's perspectives, actually we will both learn. I will see that even though I, I do still think I'm free to do this, there are considerations I missed and that I was not thinking about. And this person might start to think, you know what, I can see that they're doing this in a Christian way. I think Paul is he's wanting to secure that space to keep talking. So this is not a prescription for being doormats. This is really important. This is not a prescription for just letting others have their way if it upsets them uh, to do anything different. This is a call for patience with one another in the hope of helping one another towards godliness. Okay, I've gone on a bit long. Um, I'm going to finish. I'm going to finish by saying two things. First, we could go on about this for ages. Uh, and you'll probably have lots of unanswered questions. Next week, at, as we get to the end of this part, I'm going to try and make some time for questions uh, about this whole section. We're not going to have it today, but that's the plan. A bit more time next week. The second thing that I just want to say to finish, though, is just to notice that what we see here is a profoundly different approach to community to one we see growing in power in our world today. Probably all of us have heard the phrase cancel culture. It's a pretty use, useless phrase. I'm not really interested in using it. It's been weaponized by right-wing pundits to attack all sorts of left-wing straw men. But what it does kind of vaguely point to is an attitude towards right and wrong where, that you can find every day on the internet and that is very different to what we see here. It's an attitude characterized by real rigidity about what is right and intolerance towards any who disagree. It's an attitude where you have to get the language exactly right and you have to agree and you have to send all the right signals. And it causes vicious fights among people who occupy an enormous amount of common ground. And it's fueled by a belief that there can be no patience with injustice. There can be no patience with prejudice. There can be no patience with foolishness. Christian community is called to something different, something much messier, much harder in some ways, but also much easier and more joyful in other ways. 
We are called to never lose sight of the preciousness of one another, even when we disagree. And we are called to seek one another's good together, even when that asks us to be, to be patient in costly and frustrating ways. Let's pray. Almighty God, give us some of the patience we see in your Son, Jesus Christ, who came among us full of grace and love and who suffered to the end, that we might have peace and be built up in you. We ask for this grace to be among us and to transform us as a community more and more each day for Jesus' sake. Amen. Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.